Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Joanna Levin on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Bohemia in America, 1858 to 1920. You probably know what a hipster is. Well, before hipsters, there were slackers, and before slackers, there were punks, and before punks, there were hippies. And before hippies, there were beats. But before all of them, there were bohemians. Now, real bohemians come from Bohemia, but these aren't real bohemians. These are people who decided to call themselves bohemians in the 1840s in Paris, France, because they thought that the gypsies had come from Bohemia. So really, we should call bohemians gypsies. But in any event, this phenomenon, the phenomenon of bohemianism, made its way to American shores in the 1850s and spread throughout the United States. It concentrated, of course, in New York and San Francisco. Joanna does a terrific job of telling this story, of giving us kind of a genealogy of modern American, I think I should say modern white American subcultures. I think you'll be interested in it. So uh, without further ado, here is the interview. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Uh, very well, thank you. And I, you? I'm, I'm very well. I should apologize again for waking you up. I called Joanna a little bit early because I had our times wrong. So I apologize again. No problem. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Joanna Levin about her new book, Bohemia in America, 1858 to 1920. Uh, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, I read these books and I read this one and I think it's terrific. I found it in the Stanford catalog. And I said, you know, I got to read this book because to be quite honest with you, I was just sort of interested in the history of alternative cultures or subcultures in the United States. Um, and because I, I didn't really know anything about it. It turns out I was a part of several of them, um, never really very successfully. But uh, uh, learning the roots of them, the historical roots of them from Joanna has been a, a real treat for me. And I encourage you to go out and uh, read the book because, uh, for example, if you're a hipster or something like that, you'll find out um, sort of where all of your moves come from. <laughs> so, so, right, that we're doomed to repeating these moves that yeah, have been endlessly exactly, recycled. Exactly. It's funny. It's funny. That's a funny thing. We'll talk about that. But uh, it does get reinvented every generation now. But anyway, like we'll talk about that in a second. So uh, let me ask you, Joanna, to start the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Certainly. Well, I'm initially from Amherst, Massachusetts, um, otherwise known as part of the Happy Valley, the Hampshire Valley um, in Western Mass. My, my, and I'm, of sorry, course, I'm sorry to interrupt. My wife is uh, from um, Northampton, and I've spent a lot of time there. Yeah, it's a it's a great place. I miss it, but I'm able to get back there a couple times a year. Mm -hmm. And of course, as since you're familiar with the area, you know it is a a very noted countercultural zone to this day. Yes. So you can probably trace my interest in this subject matter Mm -hmm. to early in my life. Um, So, uh, yet born and raised in Amherst. And then I did my undergraduate work at Yale, where I majored in American studies. As you noted in the pre-interview, I'm not actually an historian, but at least in my undergraduate career, I was doing a lot of interdisciplinary work. We're we're historians. We're a big tent organization. We'll take that. Okay. (laughs) And there is, is, of course, a lot of history in my book. Mm -hmm. So, but... um, so I was at Yale in the late 80s. Um, gosh, during one of the summers, I, I spent a great summer in Greenwich Village, of course, one of the central places in my book. I lived just off of Washington Square. I had sublet an apartment, a great apartment um, on Thompson Street, just off Bleecker. It had a shower in the kitchen. So <laughs> I think that was, one, again, one of my initial exposures to uh, the kind of lifestyle that I'd end up writing about. 
And then I went on to do my graduate work in English at Stanford in the 90s. So um, I did live part of the time in Palo Alto, but ultimately moved to yet another fabled countercultural area, the Haight-Ashbury. So that's where I was living when I was doing a lot of the research for my book. Now I'm currently living in Orange County, California, which is is not known for being a countercultural terrain, to say the least. Though I guess that, you know, there are these various surfer communities on, on the coast that might qualify. But I am married to a painter, so I would say that my actual home is very studio-like and hence bohemian. Okay. So, um, yeah, that, that's a brief rundown of where I've been. Mm-hmm. So how, how did you come to write the book? The book itself, so, uh, you know, again, I've always had an interest in the counterculture, but the specific book project um, began to emerge for me in graduate school. I was just happened for two different classes to be reading works from the late 19th, early 20th century that referenced bohemianism. Uh, one, and I end up writing about both of these works, one was James Weldon Johnson's Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, in which he talks about the black bohemia of midtown Manhattan, you know, just before the rise of Harlem as a cultural center. And at the same time, I was also reading a lot of Willa Cather. And in particular, I'd encountered the story of hers called The Bohemian Girl which features an immigrant from the Central European country of Bohemia, though she also has, all, this character also has all sorts of attributes that we would associate with uh, uh, what I call metaphoric Bohemians. Mm-hmm. So I just started to wonder about the uh, history of this concept in American culture. I knew vaguely that, you know, at this concept had first emerged in the Parisian Latin Quarter, but I didn't really know when it came over to the U.S. and the various ways in which it first took root in American culture. So, um, you know, that is the history that I have sought to recover in my book, but it really did just emerge from these two references Mm -hmm. and the sort of serendipity of encountering both at once. Mm And um, so I was greatly aided in my quest by what I think is still a wonderful, fun, entertaining book, Albert Perry's Garrets and Pretenders, A History of Bohemianism in America, which was published in 1933 and, you know, which really remained the only comprehensive history of the phenomenon until, um, well, hopefully my, my book is also a version of that and will provide another comprehensive history. Mm-hmm. But he, um, his book, uh, very entertaining. Uh, he did go on to become a professional historian, but he wrote this before he did his graduate work, and it's very light and anecdotal, but it gave me lots of good leads to investigate further. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, actually start to tell the story, and let's begin it at the beginning. Um, sure. uh, Bohemia or uh, the idea of bohemians doesn't really have anything to do with bohemia, does it? How does it uh, begin? Uh, and I'm thinking specifically about France in the 1840s. Yes. Uh, well, the French uh, writers and artists in the 1840s had begun to call themselves bohemians because they were really identifying with the gypsies. And they believed uh, erroneously that the gypsies had first begun their migrations from the Central European country of Bohemia, which is now, of course, part of the Czech Republic. So in calling themselves Bohemians, they were really wanting to call themselves gypsies. (laughs) So, um, but uh, that term became popular and was really immortalized in a series of sketches and later a popular musical melodrama written by Henri Merger in the 1840s. 
And, uh, you know, uh, that's where we get a lot of the uh, initial characters and situations that pop up towards the end of the century in Puccini's La Boheme. Merche, Merche, if I could just uh, pause on him for a second, because it's an interesting window into how these cultural phenomena get started. Merge is very important because he's sort of the publicist of these people. Is he one of them? Yes. Yes, he is. So he had very mixed feelings about being one of them, and he hoped that this was just a way station for him and that, you know, he would ultimately achieve a certain kind of haute bourgeois status. Mm So... um, he never really did, despite having some success with these bohemian sketches. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, he he was absolutely popularized the phenomenon and um, inspired so many of the latter day bohemians, including the U.S. bohemians. Mm-hmm. But just to stay with the French bohemians for a second, who exactly are we talking about here, and where did they live? So, because so, I'm sure some of the listeners either live there or have been there. Certainly, yes, the the Latin Quarter. So, uh, the, you know, on the left bank. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we're talking about, like, the Goncourts and Baudelaire and, oh, like various groups. There was one group called the Water Drinkers. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they just drink water. And what, dis- and what, distinguished, what distinguished these folks from uh, what was the uh, sort of differentia specifica of this subcultural group? Well, they were all struggling writers, and there was a sense of that the writers were now in a very precarious position because they were depending on the marketplace for their livelihoods. The patronage system had just broken down, and so they were still trying to figure out whether they would be able to support themselves as artists. And so that's why we get this, all of these tales of these starving artists who need to band together in order to try desperately to make a go of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be a perennial question among people that try to make their living with a pen. Iowa City is full of such people. I mean, yeah. they, they're serving you coffee and beer everywhere. <laughs> so, I don't know if they're bohemians, but they are definitely starving. Um, yeah. In any event, so how did this uh, – now, th- this phenomenon became known as, as bohemianism in Europe first, and then it migrated to the uh, United States. How did it do that? Yes, uh, it's the first group, and I trace uh, their history in Chapter 1 of my book, um, it was started by this iconoclastic figure named Henry Clapp, who had actually spent time in Paris. And he very self-consciously wanted to import this lifestyle to America. And it was around this time, too, uh, in the 1850s, that Merger was first being translated into English. I guess he had been, uh, his work had started to appear in the popular Knickerbocker magazine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Americans were ex- who even, who had not yet been to Paris were exposed via Merger to this lifestyle. But Clapp had actually been abroad, and he felt that he wanted to be at the forefront of creating a much more cosmopolitan ambience in New York City. And he located his Bohemia. He had been a journalist, um, and he located his Bohemia at. Salon Saloon, rather, um, which was a basement saloon beneath Broadway and Bleecker. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, it became a very visible, noted countercultural spot, like including the likes of Walt Whitman, most famously. But um, he, and he also started a paper, the New York Saturday Press, which, uh, was very eclectic, but a major thrust of this paper really was trying to popularize the uh, lifestyle of bohemianism to a lot of the editorials and essays write about why it's so important to be a bohemian, what bohemianism can add to American culture, what sort of defects in the national character it can begin to remedy. Yeah. What's what's interesting to me about that is both the French and the initial American bohemians is that they seem to make a kind of virtue out of necessity. That is, they're never going to make any money, so they say not making money is a good thing. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. 
yeah, that there's something ennobling about it, yeah, right, about sure, the, yeah. the poverty incurred in, in Bohemia. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Let's talk a little bit about what happens in Fafs and, and Whitman's uh, time there and, and with Clapp. What, what do they do uh, in Fafs and, and what, what, what are they trying to do? Well, they, and um, that's the thing, there's a lot of editorials that, you know, and they became quickly very controversial. I, I quote in my book this editorial that appeared in the New York Times about just how detrimental these bohemians were to American culture, that they were lazy, they didn't have a good work ethic, they were affected, and really that they should not in any sense, be emulated. And so a lot of the activity in past seemed to be devoted to defending themselves against such accusations. So they mounted a campaign in the New York Saturday Press, their house organ, and also in various periodicals that these um, bohemian journalists wrote for, including Harper's and Vanity Fair, these campaigns to try to defend their ethos. And you know, they say, look, it's not that we don't work hard. It's just that we work in rather odd hours. Mm-hmm. That was one of their major defenses. But uh, clearly, they uh, were extremely hardworking. The Saturday press is oh, it's very impressive. It appeared weekly between 1898 and 1860. And really, they were also in a quest to find kind of the great American writer. Mm-hmm. So that was part of what they were dedicated to doing, and they you know, certainly believed that they had found such a writer in the person of Walt Whitman. So, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, articles in the press leading up to the publication of the second edition of Leaves of Grass, the 1860 edition, uh, were dedicated towards publicizing Whitman and asserting his importance. Mm-hmm. Did these people look different than us or ordinary New Yorkers? And how so? And how so? Uh, maybe a little bit more disheveled. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, they they didn't go in for the full-on slouchy-hatted bohemian garb that was known in, uh, as the bohemian uniform in the Latin Quarter. Mm-hmm. So they didn't... Um, cultivate such a, a distinct costume, yeah, I see. Um, so it would seem. So one of the only uh, drawings, and I have this drawing in my book, actually uh, shows Whitman at Fast, but he's wearing, it, the drawing was it was done in the late 19th century, and he's wearing late 19th century clothing. Mm-hmm. So it actually doesn't give us a snapshot into that moment. Mm-hmm. So these people weren't um, kind of dissolute. They weren't uh, living a kind of louche lifestyle or anything like that. They, they were uh, a little bit more serious than I think we would associate bohemianism with today. Is that correct? I think so. I think so. Even uh, William Dean Howells, uh, as a young man, had visited Fafs. He had been doing all these literary pilgrimages in the East. He had been to see the, the literati in Boston, and then he went to New York. And it is telling, though, that he knew, he knew even though he was from Ohio, he knew about Fafs, and he said that it represented New York literary life to his imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did say that uh, he, he did expect the Fafians to be a little wilder. He said the orgy went but slowly for an orgy, if orgy it could yeah. be called. Well, you know, and that's a curious thing about the people in FAFS, as I understand it. They were, uh, I don't think most people who listen to this show, certainly not me, would associate bohemianism with the temperance movement. Right. <laughs> but it, they were associated, so please explain that. Yes, so actually I think both Clapp and Whitman had really given up on the temperance movement by the time they became bohemians. But interestingly, they they had both been heavily involved in temperance um, immediately before they became associated with bohemianism. Um, So Whitman, you can sort of see shades of his later bohemianism in his temperance writing. He was part of the second wave of the temperance movement, the Washingtonian movement, which was more um, lower middle class, working class. 
and a lot of the temperance of the Washingtonian temperance writing is known as dark temperance writing in that it seems to actually revel in the details of vice, even though by the end it tries to repudiate such vices. They uh, provide these very uh, saucy narratives. Um, like well, Whitman had this temperance novel, Franklin Evans, which he had published in 1842, and he writes, he walks, the character right, walks into a, a salon, a saloon, and says, "Oh, fatal pleasure! I'd never before experienced such pleasure." So the temperance writing kind of makes you long for the very kinds of scenes and scenarios, which of course then they try to convince you to avoid. So in that sense, you can see it, and it does anticipate some of uh, his later attraction to uh, spending so much time in a saloon. Uh, Clapp, though, is different. He he didn't indulge in that kind of dark temperance writing. He was a little bit more ambiguous in his advocacy of temperance. So it turned out once he gave up on temperance, he became a very, very heavy drinker. <laughs> um, and I think in, indeed even died of alcoholism oh, really? oh. later on. Too bad. Uh, so at this point in the uh, 18, I guess, 60s, 1870s, the... Uh, the Bohemian Movement in America is a New York phenomenon. It, uh, it's it's located in what is now Greenwich Village, right? And then it's also yes. in Boston, isn't it? Well, not so much. Actually, the Bohemians define themselves against the Bostonians. Mm -hmm. So they are the new – so Bohemia for them is very much – a New York phenomenon, and Boston represents a dreaded bourgeois ethos mm. that they seek to repudiate. Mm -hmm. So Boston and the Bostonian literati become their sort of self-defining opposites. That's a little bit like what we think about Cedar Rapids here in Iowa City. It's, it's pretty much the big cultural opposite. I'm kidding. We don't do that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so or Orange County, Orange, California. Yeah, Orange right. County, I suppose. Yeah. So the uh, so then uh, let's migrate or let's move uh, Bohemianism uh, across the United States to uh, San Francisco, where it uh, sets up shop uh, pretty quickly. Yes, yes. By the early 1860s, and uh, that's it. Uh, really um, starts to take root in the writings of Bret Hart when he was writing for the Golden Era. And um, he he's had a series of columns, and before he started using his own name, he would just sign these columns, The Bohemian. And um, interestingly, uh, Albert Perry, who I said had I've written this book on bohemianism in the 30s that inspired my book, and Perry's claim was that Hart mistook the color, the aroma, and the bustle of the pioneering days for bohemianism, that he was really deluded in thinking that he could possibly be a bohemian in San Francisco in this period. But I argue otherwise. I felt like it was clear to me reading these books, these columns in the golden era that Hart really did feel a strong connection with the original bohemian concept, even as he tried to adapt it to his particular surroundings. Mm -hmm. So, um, for instance, and that really... It's sort of part of, you know, what was very popular at the time, the spectatorial genre that he was writing in. Um, you know, certainly in the British context, you had the important precursors of Addison and Steele and the Spectator. Though he's also influenced by the figure of the French flaneur and the uh, and the flaneur's appearance in the Parisian press. So mm -hmm. he was trying to imitate those forerunners mm -hmm. so these folks weekly columns yeah i was going to say these folks um hart and and uh, other people who take the kind of um, late 19th century bohemian stance i can see a kind of ironic distance already creeping into it this first generation of bohemians um 
Clapp and uh, Whitman, of course, who's the most serious person on earth, uh, were very serious about what they were doing. But then a little bit later, it seems to change, and they seem to become... They seem to become, I won't say satirists, but they are uh, observers of manners. Let's put it that way. Would that be a correct characterization, or am I making that up? No, absolutely. Absolutely. So so I think he remained very serious about his bohemianism, and that it was right, that it was this way of helping him to achieve an ironic distance Mm -hmm. on contemporary San Francisco. Yeah, but here's the kind of, I guess here's the kind of interesting thing to me as a historian is is that these people never seem to be, from the perspective of people on what we might call the hard left, or even the progressives for that matter, uh, or even the populists for that matter, they never really seem to be interested in embarking on a full-scale critique of American culture. They were just interested in kind of, um, I don't know, throwing spitballs at, at people. They never... You know, they, many of them, mm-hmm. they didn't join the Socialist Party. They didn't join the progressives. They didn't become populists. They, they didn't run for mayor. They didn't say American culture is absolutely bankrupt and we must transform it or the working class is, is downtrodden or we should free, you know, or we should, uh, you know, we should liberate uh, black people from the chains of discrimination. They, they weren't, uh, uh, it seems to me, I don't know, I'm, I'm asking, mm-hmm. they don't seem to have been very political really. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do take various political stances, but it's true that they uh, weren't engaged in uh, in organized politics, at least at this time. Of course, that changes towards in the early 20th century. And there are some isolated exceptions later on, like Jack London, um, who did become a socialist. But Hart, um, I mean, he does... He, He's very, very critical about elements of San Francisco, and he's very much wanting a more vibrant public sphere. He's very critical of the way private commercial interests seem to be taking over San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So that's something that comes through again and again in his writing. And actually, that's present in the Saturday Press, too, the, the group that congregated at SAS. They, they're very critical about allocation of resources mm-hmm. in in the culture, and so they do kind of want to use their bohemianism to encourage the creation of a more vibrant uh, civic culture. Yeah, but I guess they, you know, in a way, they kind of remind me of people you meet in cafes and bars today around Iowa City, who uh, you know they always have opinion about this, that, and the other thing, and then they decide they're going to go watch TV. Um, that they don't really ever do very much about it. Maybe I'm being too harsh on the Bohemians. I'll stop that right now. So, <laughs> well, at least they take the step of um, at least voicing their yeah, opinions. No, that's true. In that's a good, that, that is definitely a good thing. Um, was it around this time that uh, Bohemianism uh, became something other than a literary movement in the sense that uh, the people that were involved in it were not writers? Did, did it show any uh, sign of migrating to uh, other demographic groups, people that, uh, I don't know, were, were yeah. young or people that were uh, sort of footloose or people, I don't know, any other sort of group? Well, at this point, um, not so much, not until really it becomes something of a popular fad by 1870. And that's really the dividing point in my book. That's the beginning of book two. Mm-hmm. Um, book one focuses on these earlier manifestations, first in New York and then in San Francisco. Well, let's just actually, let's stop right there and we'll talk about uh, book two then. How, how do you make the transition and what happens in 1870 or in the 1870s that marks a kind of transition to a new era in bohemianism? There, it's just, um, I started to see evidence that it was catching on and it was becoming more broadly diffused throughout the culture. I, I start that uh, section, book two, by uh, referring to this essay in Appleton's, which a uh, uh, popular magazine at the time, which marveled at the fact, and this was in 1877 actually, that there could be such a thing as a good bohemian. That before you had these bad bohemians who were, and you know, that of course the Hart and the Safians were aware that this was the dominant view of bohemians, that they were perpetually in debt, that they were not thrifty, that their exertions were only fitful, that they 
you know, that they, they really were not proponents of a dedicated work ethic. But finally, by, by uh, 1877, at least for this essay, the writer says, no, actually, you can be a good bohemian. You, you might not just be vagrant, lawless, idle, and dishonest. You could be <laughs> independent, brave, adroit, mm-hmm. with, and I am quoting here, with wild poetry and elasticity in personal habits. Mm-hmm. Elasticity in personal habits. Yeah. I think a lot of my students have elasticity in personal habits. Yes, mine, I mine I li- as I don't well. I like it very much, to be honest. It's a little too elastic for me. But in any event, so <laughs> does, this, does bohemianism become kind of an attractive model? And here I'm kind of thinking about what bohemianism would become. Uh, that is almost a rite of passage in American life where everybody goes through the stage where they live this kind of elastic lifestyle where other people were sort of... Right, especially to. when they're students. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm coming to Today, that. Today, I mean, that's... Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, that it is this rite of passage, um, a prelude to a more settled, consolidated bourgeois identity. Exactly, exactly. So let's let's talk a little bit about... Um, the, the Bohemian Grove, because that is one of the most fascinating things in the book. I had uh, done some research on the Bohemian Grove, actually, when I used to work for a, a magazine, because it is such a strange thing. Maybe you could tell us what it is, uh, where it came from, and uh, how it reflected or did not reflect earlier strains of Bohemianism. Sure, and I'll be interested to hear about your research. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh uh, it's the Bohemian Grove is the site of the yearly encampment for the Bohemian Club of San Francisco. And this is a very odd club. It was first started in 1872 by a group of journalists who were just dedicated to good fellowship and a great great phrase, and to the defiance of the ogre respectability. But, of course, this club increasingly became very, very respectable indeed, very prestigious, because they started to bring in various local business leaders. And they did that, I think, really to finance their endeavors, and even probably to create uh, a quasi-patronage system for, um, well, not just the journalists, but also the artists who joined the group. So you could become a member of this club just by talking about, oh, I think later on you actually had to write an essay, some kind of little essay about your dedication to the arts. I don't know if that started right away. You at least had to claim to appreciate the arts. You didn't actually have to be an artist or a writer to join. So um, it is unique. I think the the sociologist William Domoff, who's written a lot about the Bohemian Club, says that it's unique among high-status clubs in America. You have a couple other clubs, like the Century Club in New York City, which had brought together artists and businessmen. But um, this club went even farther by having, uh, you know, this yearly encampment where everyone would spend time to, you know, this intense two-week period together. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was going to say it reminds me a little bit of, and this is sort of the punchline of my research, that uh, it reminded me quite a bit of the Shriners uh, or uh, maybe even the Masons in what they've become today because they uh, ensconce themselves in some secluded place and dress funny and do some funny things and make fun of themselves. Uh, and then they give a lot of money to charity or something like that, you know, in, in order to excuse their decadence somehow. So it, 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 am I wrong about that? I mean, this seems like a moment in really significant co-optation of the idea of bohemianism. It, it no longer is alternative. It is then somehow mainstreamed by the inclusion of these incredibly powerful figures. Does that make sense? Yes, and I mean, by now you have lots of uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, I mean, we know that George Schultz, of- right, we know that George Schultz has a tiger on his ass because he, went and he, he uh, you know, wanders around the, the California Redwoods every year with these guys, and George Schultz is a person of some significance. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe to play devil's advocate a little bit, I wanted to claim that they did, at least initially, uh, 
contain some kind of vital connection to the bohemian ethos. Mm-hmm. That they were, I mean, even though they were clearly members of the local bourgeoisie, their time in Bohemian in, in Bohemia represented for them some kind of utopian alternative to their own lives. Yeah, right. So this is yeah, this is the it's, uh, what did they do out there in the woods? They had this elaborate ceremony, and the ceremony began, it was first performed in 1880. It was essentially, and mind you, so by then you have, uh, I think in the 1880s, there were about 300 club members. By the 1890s, you have 600. And they all, every year, cremate an effigy known as air. <laughs> they still do this every year, every summer. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like what um, you know what I did when I was fourteen with my buddies in the uh, the wacky club, or I don't forget what we called it. I don't know, the Devils or something. You know, we would like uh, go into the into the fields of Kansas and do strange things, and we invented a handshake and had a code and you know that kind of stuff. I mean, it really seems like a return to adolescence to me, but I maybe I'm wrong. It, I no, it is, and, and that is what I argue. <laughs> I mean, this is they're they're able in the context of this club to return to adolescence or even to. to childhood to boyhood with impunity no no women in bohemian grove no women no women wow and to this day no women i couldn't even to do this research i couldn't get into their library really not even their library (laughs) no they would not let me in well for christ's sake shame on them i mean i'm not saying they should open up their organization to women but they should certainly open up their archive to women what is the deal? It's like the Orthodox guy that won't shake your hand. I mean, what's the what's with that? I you know I, um, yeah. I know I was enraged. But fortunately, actually, um, I was at Stanford when I did my initial research on this chapter, and fortunately, a number of Stanford professors have apparently been members of the Bohemian Club. Oh, for Club. God's sake! So the complete annals of the Bohemian Club are yeah, available at the Stanford Library. Wow, that's, that's wild. That's a, that's a good story in and of itself. You probably have you, did you try? Did you try to get into their library? I, I did. You should yes, write a little story about their... that. That sounds hilarious. And get into New York <laughs> or something because that just sounds richer than I don't know what. You know. <laughs> And I tried even to get into the Bohemian Grove. I don't. I don't know I, you, but I, you don't sound really very threatening to me. <laughs> <laughs> so those people. Yes. No. Clearly, I had to be stopped. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. You're going to subvert the subverting organization, or I don't know something like that. So anyway, this, the Bohemian Grove continues to exist today, which I guess is good for the people that are members. So um, uh, it's a. a, a Many of the uh, listeners will know about this concept of a bohemian bourgeois. And, and is this the origin of that? Or oh yes, I because I, I do begin the the chapter talking about this sort of current notion of the the bobo. There had been. Have you read um, David Brooks's Bobos in Paradise? Yeah, I used to kind of. I know the guy a little bit. I used to work with him a little bit, and I did read the book. Yes, it's got the new upper class and how they got there. Yeah, I don't. I didn't really buy the book myself. I didn't think it was really. Uh, yeah, I, did, I don't know. Maybe I'm just wrong. But I. But in any event, I, I do. Yes, know the I concept. was just flipping yeah. through it, and it says that um, one statement says, "In Sil- meanwhile, in Silicon Valley, there are more millionaires than people." Hmm. That's a direct <laughs> quote. <laughs> yeah. and, I did live in Silicon Valley in 2000 and certainly was not a millionaire. Yeah, well, that's that's (laughs) too bad for you, and I guess it's too bad for Mr. Brooks's book. But in any event, it's worth it's worth it's worth reading. This book is worth reading. But we do have this notion today that uh, somehow uh, we we have um, that there's something about authenticity and alternativeness that we have adopted and mainstreamed. And and would you say the Bohemian Grove is one of the tap roots of this notion? I think yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's when it really starts to become respectable. You start to have the local guidebooks talking about how great Bohemia is and how ennobling, how elevating. Yeah. I don't know. Again, I'm coming back to this notion where – I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but I just perceive all of this as lame because th- these people claim to have some critical stance on the world, but – they are yeah. all of the world and don't want to do anything about it. So it seems to me nothing more than a kind of um, phoniness. I, I, again, I usually don't get yeah. this political in yeah. the shows. Yeah, no, I mean it probably did. It's sort of pathetic in a way. You know, it's like people who uh, 
feign religiosity. You know, not really religious. They kind of go to church, but they don't believe any of that stuff. But they go. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe I, drank, yeah. so I think I drank too much coffee too or something. I don't know. So it, what was striking to me, though, was how, because I was reading all of the official club rhetoric and the invitations to these encampments, and it's really clear, you know, and even though I'm sure all of this official club rhetoric was written by the uh, artist, journalist members, uh, but they knew their audience. And there was the notion that these people, the bourgeois members, were exhausted and that they needed Bohemia to recuperate, to be restored, to be recreated. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that that I did find compelling. Mm -hmm. That, you know, this is, you know, also the way that this sort of played into various emerging therapeutic discourses. Mm -hmm. So that's something I tried to trace in the chapter, how Bohemia becomes aligned with... Oh, it becomes a version of the contemporary rest cure and even emerging cults of the wilderness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And indeed, John Murr was, uh, you know, one of the leading representatives of the uh, wilderness movement, it was a Bohemian Club member. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. We, we interviewed a fellow who wrote a huge um, Murr um, biography. I don't know if that came up or not. I can't remember. It's been so long ago. But in any event, I kind of want to move forward a little bit to what will be much more familiar terrain, I think, to many of our listeners, to Greenwich Village itself, or at least to the Lower East Side where most most folks have been. And um, uh, Interestingly, I lived in uh, San Francisco near the Haight, and I also lived uh, in Manhattan, and I, I'm pretty much the least bohemian person on earth. That's what I've determined after reading your book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but but um, y- you do mention a fellow, which I've – uh, long been interested in uh, because I've seen the titles of his book and I kind of know what he did. And his name, I think, was um, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, was his name Hapgood? Yes, Hutchins yeah. Hapgood. Hutchins Hapgood, yes. And he plays a kind of important role, uh, or maybe he doesn't, but I just want to hear you talk a little bit about him because he's just, to me, an incredibly interesting character. Yes, and he, he shows up in two different chapters of my book. I mean, first, he's interested in the Jewish Bohemia of the Lower East Side. He'd written um, various books about uh, uh, types from the city streets. And he, so he's initially, uh, and so this is before the Greenwich Village of the 1910s really took root. Uh, He's not sure about whether Jews can be bohemians. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. That's going to be extraordinarily disturbing to many people that listen to this show. Let me tell you. Yes, it was very disturbing to me, too. Um, as he said, that Jews lacked the, re- the necessary repose and balance to be yeah, good bohemians. Whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah. So he said that he'll, he will still use the word bohemia, he says, but only roughly. Yeah. He says, I'll roughly refer to what we might call the literary bohemia of right. this quarter. Right. So, the, I mean, this is an interesting. The reason I kind of mentioned this is that he was, I mean, he's kind of a fascinating character because he obviously takes an incredible interest in the Lower East Side and in American uh, Judaism. And he, the, this book, uh, which I can't remember the name of, I've read a little of, and it's really quite fascinating. Spirit of the Ghetto. Yeah, yes. it's really a pretty amazing book. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of our sort of stereotypes about uh, American Jews come out of the book. I didn't know this, and they're not particularly correct. You know, for example, like, he ta- he t- you know, that they'll talk all the time about politics, and they're all socialists and these kinds of things. That's not... It turns out that's, of course, not really true, but we do have this kind of stereotype about it. But what was interesting to me is how bohemianism in his writings, he plays with the idea, becomes kind of racialized or, or I don't know, culturalized or ethnicized or something. Because he does, he does wonder yeah. who can be a bohemian and who can't. Yes, exactly. And, he, yes, and very important about whether the Jews can be. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the reason why I guess he associates Jews uh, so heavily with socialism is that uh, his in- Abraham Kahan was yeah. the figure who gave Hapgood his introduction to yeah. the Lower East. Who is it, who I should say is an equally interesting person. Uh, he also had an amazing life, um, and we yeah. talked we talked about him on the show before. But anyway, so let's move actually into the T 
teens, I guess it is, where we have full-blown bohemianism in the West or East. Uh, is it the West Village or the East Village? I can't remember where it grows up. Uh, how, how, does it, uh, how does it blossom? Well, yeah, it's, it's, how do all of these people arrive at the same time? I don't know. A number of them had come from Chicago, and um, there were various cultural institutions that helped to speed it along, like the Liberal Club in Greenwich Village, and then, of course, a periodical, the masses, which mm-hmm. became very influential and enabled a number of the Bohemians. To I mean, one one thing I think that we as a group. Yeah, one thing I think we have to do is kind of set the uh, the what I would call the material conditions of Bohemia. Uh, at this time, if I'm not incorrect, the lower uh, the lower part of of Manhattan, this part of the lower part of Manhattan, was not a particularly desirable place to live. That's right. Yeah, That's and it was, right. and it was it really sort of was... filthy and dirty and, and nasty, and you know, just was all the things that, you know, for example, if you were going to raise a family, it wouldn't be the first thing you thought of. Exactly, and it was fairly isolated too, because you didn't yet have the subway connecting Greenwich Village to the rest of Upper Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And once the, I mean, you could already see the Bohemians in the 1910s are worried about the building of the subway mm-hmm. and that that really will change the material conditions that enabled their Bohemia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They recognized that indeed rents would start to rise once that area mm-hmm became more accessible. And, and what, uh, could you actually, um, I don't mean to put you on the spot or anything, but can you name some names that we might recognize of people who are in the village at this time and we might associate with this movement? Oh, sure. Um, so especially with the masses group, you had Max Eastman as the editor of the masses and John Reed quickly became a part of that group. And I also talk a lot in the chapter about Mabel Dodge. Mm-hmm who had been a good friend of Hutchins Hapgoods, and she had a salon that also was also a key kind of focal point of village culture. Mm-hmm. And you have Emma Goldman, you have uh, all the whole group connected with the Provincetown players mm-hmm. that, you know, over the summer they'd go to Provincetown, but then the Provincetown players would come back to Greenwich Village mm-hmm. and perform their plays. Uh, most famously, you have uh, Eugene O'Neill involved with that group, um, Floyd Dell, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a very, a very vibrant scene, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be the first time in which, uh, again, I'm not a literary historian, in which, or an artistic historian, but um, in which a self-described set of Bohemians has, in the United States, has a really significant artistic output. Prior to this, I, you know, they were sort of performance artists or something, but, or journalists, or, I mean, they wrote things, but it was really only in the 19-teens and 20s and in this movement that we we can say, here is a body of work that we can associate with Bohemianism. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So, what I do um, explore in the whole book is just how frequently even some of our most famous writers wrote about bohemianism yes, that's the, in that, this time. And that is really interesting because, uh, again, my, my, um, my impression reading the book is that bo- bohemianism is really kind of a stance that you take so that other people will write about you. And boy, did they write about them. I mean, it, it, in the case of yes. Village, it kind of became a stop on tours of New York City. And this is long before it became, a st- you know, we, we all know that uh, Haight-Ashbury became a a stop on tours in the 1960s and 1970s. And I think it still is. You know, you take a bus tour of San Francisco, you get to go to Haight-Ashbury. Um, right, of course. Uh, where people can no longer sit on the sidewalk, I'm told. Uh, but in any event... The, in, in oh, 19... no, that's changed since I was there. Yeah, and so, so then uh, and then in the 1920s, it, it, it enters guidebooks, this place. Yes, even, even earlier, there's this guy, uh, Guido Bruno, who took it upon himself to be the tour guide. For this Bohemia, uh-huh. and um, and he did publicize it extensively. Yeah. So, um, but Hapgood, I, I use Hapgood a lot in my chapter. He sort of tried to sketch, it, and actually, this was an unpublished essay that he stopped writing, uh, unfortunately, in the middle of this essay. But he calls it the New Bohemia, and he sketches its borders. 
He says, the borders of this Bohemia are the old world Bohemia and the artistic temperament, the feminist movement, and the industrial workers of the world. Mm-hmm. And that this is really where we do get the most politicized version of yeah, Bohemianism to date. It was a really interesting moment because it does break that kind of pattern of disengagement and ironic detachment, particularly in a figure like, um, well, someone like Eastman or John Reed and... I happen to know quite a bit about John Reed because he uh, is of some significance in Russian history. Um, yeah. I mean, he obviously went on to be a, a very a famous uh, communist and, and went um, and, and he wrote 10 Days That Took the World and things like this. Maybe you can explain how he drifted from uh, bohemianism to socialism. Mm-hmm. And he was ambivalent about it because he said that his socialism was wreaking havoc with his poetry. But then ultimately, clearly, he committed himself to uh, to socialism. Well, probably a good move if you've read his poetry. I'm, yes. Um, anyway. True enough. True enough. And they were all a little touchy about their association with bohemianism. I mean, even years later, Max Eastman was defending his involvement in Bohemia against uh, charges from the new masses, you know, which was much, much more... Um, of a, you know, a doctrinaire communist uh, periodical. And they were, the new masses, the editors of the new masses were claiming that, you know, he was just this middle-class bohemian. He didn't, he wasn't really committed to the movement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, years later, he's still trying to defend himself against that charge. Mm-hmm. He even was very upset about Garrett's and Pretenders, that Albert Perry book. <laughs> he said uh, because Perry had said in that book that um, being being middle class, the masses, the you know the original masses, revolted for revolt's sake and not for reshaping the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that yeah. seems to. I mean, that comes right to the basic point, I think. And 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 again, I'm looking forward a little bit, and I want to talk a little bit about Bohemianism after your book ends. But it seems to me at this point uh, there's a sort of fundamental split between uh, bohemianism and uh, radical political change, and they don't really come back together until uh, the 1960s, if at all. Because if you look at the successors, and again, I'll just lay this out to see what you think about it. If you look at the successors of people that have alternative lifestyles after bohemianism, you have, oh, I don't know, let me just kind of make this up. You have, uh, well, you have some hipsters in the 1940s, sure. and then you have uh, beats in the 1950s, and you have hippies in the 1960s, and then in the 1970s you have punks and I don't know what else, and then and eventually you get hipsters, but none of these groups are politically engaged in any way. I mean, hippies perhaps, maybe, but, you know, right. I was actually, I was listening to an interview with uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, on the radio the other day, and, and, and he was talking about uh, going to one of those schools you've heard of in England, let's just put it that way, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and he said, he was talking about Bill Clinton smoking dope because they were there at the same time, and he said, well, you know, I was in the hard left at the time, and we didn't have anything to do with that. You know, we were just in lockstep discipline. Oh, interesting. We, we, we never did, you know, we never did anything like that. No way. We were all committed to the cause. Drinking was a waste of time. Drugs were a waste of time. They were for people who were, you know, who were bourgeois. Uh-huh. And that wasn't us. You know, we were serious Marxists. Right, So I mean, it's right. like to hear what you think about that. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, that was the charge that the new masses levied against the old masses. There's the... the Eastman has a compelling defense. I mean, he's we're saying that bohemianism is a vision of the good life that he hoped would become more broadly available in the wake of a serious socialist revolution. Mm-hmm. But he felt that it was important <laughs> to at least—I <laughs> don't know—maybe that's just a rationalization. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, remarkably self-regarding, though, to think, "Oh, geez, if everybody could live like me, well, that would be paradise." I mean, I really what he's saying. I just can't, I, I don't know. It just seems to me like parochial beyond all conception. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. A lot of these people weren't actually all that happy in the midst of their various social experiments, self-indulgent social experiments. I imagine not. Well, I, we are coming to the end of the interview, but I did want to uh, hear your speculation about one thing. And 
Um, you know, we, we hear a lot about uh, uh, people called hipsters. We've mentioned them, modern hipsters. These are the people that live in, um, uh, what is that area of Brooklyn, Williamsburg. Uh, yeah. Or they live in San Francisco. Actually, they live all over the United States. We have them here in Iowa City. They're everywhere. Uh, I, I won't attempt to describe them except to say that they um, do have a certain ironic distance from everything. Let's put it that way. Um, are they bohemians? You know, if they, I, the definition in, in my book, I was really just interested in how uh, people define themselves or, or were defined by the larger culture. So I did try to avoid searching for some authentic version of bohemianism. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm... So, you know, I... Actually, I'd be curious to ask them if they still identified it with that concept, what it meant to them. Oh, I think I can tell you exactly what they'd say. Um, yes. People that were uh, self Well, first of all, no hipster says he's a hipster. That's that's first rule of hipsterdom. You can't do that because right. you, you're, that, you're not that anything. Cool. You're kind of this free-floating signifier or whatever. You know, I mean, there's no objectivity to it. There's no authenticity, and I think that's what they'd say. Um, of course, we're not bohemians. We're not anything. We're just who we are. Uh, we are yeah. we are we are authentic in our inauthenticity, or no, maybe we are inauthentic in our authenticity. I don't know, but they they would say no. But it does seem to me that historically, mm-hmm. one can trace um, over many decades. I think the emergence of a kind of stage in life in which one acts safely different from ordinary American conventions. Um, yes, and I think that hipsterism whatever it is, is that safe distance. And I think that bohemianism is the closest thing that I can think to it because it is not political. It does not threaten anything. Uh, yes. It is satire, uh, and it's very safe satire at, at most. Um, but I, I was, mm-hmm. yeah, I was, I was just interested to see. Well, it got me thinking about it, that's all. Yeah. So there are some actually here in Orange County, and this is, I had a former student, former graduate student who was involved in this uh, great gallery cafe that tried to (laughs) combine art and politics. Mm -hmm. And so she seemed, what she was doing in this uh, great cafe really did seem to connect back to that classic Greenwich Village moment. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So they were doing, you know, really encouraging a lot of grassroots community activism. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in I'm addition very... to having these art shows and music I... performances, and feeling like the two things could go together. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the project. I am. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I grew up in the '70s and '80s, and I always wanted to be kind of alternative, but I could never really bring it off. You know, in Kansas, where I'm from, it really wasn't um, it wasn't one of the main options for self-fashioning. I guess I'd say. Yeah. Um, but I try and I don't know, I was never very successful, but I was very, you know, sympathetic and I was always drawn to these people because they seemed to me to have found something that, that I lacked. And I think every American looks at these people and says simultaneously, uh, you know, these people are troublemakers and they're making fun of this. But on the other hand, I sure would like to go hang out in the Bohemian Grove for a while. Can we go do that? You know, oh, I, certainly. they have this weird kind of attraction to us. Um, yeah. and, and, and I don't. Yeah, I, it's it's very hard to it's very hard to describe, and it seems that it plays almost a permanent role in our culture because it, this it does not go away anywhere. This is even this is one of the things terrific about your book. It shows that this bohemianism very early on spread all over the country. I mean, it really did exist in Wichita, Kansas, in the 1970s. I, I'm here to tell you, it was there. It was in a yes. place called Poverty Records, uh, where all the kind of all the proto hipsters hung out, and I was one of them. You know, I was driving my delivery truck, and uh, I would go there, and this was the early 80s, actually, and um, I would go there and buy albums by the Velvet Underground, and think I was really outre and stuff. Um, oh yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I really did feel kind of cool. You know, I felt like, oh look, I discovered something nobody else has discovered. I'm very outre, and I don't know. I just, I just find it very attractive. Any event. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh yeah, and actually, one of my favorite parts in my book is this group that um, began around 1900 in Fort Worth, Texas, and they were very committed to calling themselves Bohemians. Yeah. Right. So. You know, you certainly wouldn't expect that at that particular moment. Mm, yeah. Well, no, you would not. And again, I would. Uh, it really did exist in, in of all places, Wichita, Kansas. And I think people are always amazed to, to hear that. But it exists everywhere yeah. now. It ex- every place there is a ma- every place there's any sort of institution of higher education, 
it exists yeah. now. Uh, there's no question about it. So anyway, I want I want to say thank you very much for being on the show. We've taken up a huge amount of your time, and I and I really appreciate that. Um, oh, my pleasure. And it's absolutely terrific. Look, let me ask you our traditional uh, final question here on New Books in History, and that is, uh, what are you working on now, or what will you be working on soon? Yes, uh, two different projects. Uh, one project is on the two Gilded Ages, the late 19th century Gilded Age, and then um, you know what's become known as the Second Gilded Age, from uh, roughly the 1980s to the present. And I'm wanting to focus on realist narratives of both eras. So that's one possible project. Another possible project is a volume two of this history. <laughs> so. I'm voting for the second one. I think you should take the story up because I think it's a, I think, yeah, that's a good, that's a heck of a good project um, for many reasons. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally I, I hope very you committed to it. So I, and I, I want to see, you know, I think, I think it's one of those ideas that's sort of waiting to happen and I want to see it in good hands and they are yours. I don't want to see any hack do this project. Oh, so, thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's really my that. pleasure, so I'd like to see you do it. So anyway, uh, Joanna, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Marshall. My pleasure. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Joanna Levin about her new book, Bohemia in America, 1858 to 1920. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.